0: I invite you to turn to 1 Peter, chapter 3. 1 Peter, chapter 3, and we will be continuing this two-parter looking at the triumphs of Christ's suffering. The triumphs of Christ's suffering. We'll be reading... 1 Peter chapter 3 21 through 22 Now I am convinced that the American church has been spared considerably from suffering and persecution and so to many Christian and non-Christian alike the thought that those who are the blessed of God those who have been shown his favor and his mercy and his grace, that those would be called to suffer. That, that, that would seem to many something of a ludicrous contradiction. And this is in part caused by many in the visible church who supplement their theology by immersing themselves, not in the pages of Scripture, but in Twitter and Facebook and various New York Times bestsellers. I, 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 was, uh, I found in my email this week an article called The 100 Most Influential Evangelicals Today. And uh, the first two were all right. The third, who's well-known, and I'm, I'm not going to say his name, and I'm going to do my best not to let any uh, accent come out. Uh, I, I would like him to remain anonymous but he has tweeted such things as, don't speak defeat, but instead declare, I'm blessed, I'm strong, I'm healthy, this will be a great year. Elsewhere, he tweeted, I am too blessed to be stressed. Let let it go and enjoy this day. Another one, God is ready to take you to a new level He is ready to release a new wave of his favor. Another one, you have a destiny to fulfill. Be bold and take control of your own life. Another one, when condemning voices destroy your self-image, simply look in the mirror and know that you are approved by Almighty God. One more, you are called to be a cut above You have excellence on the inside. It's time to bring it out and have it be seen on the outside. Now, that kind of thinking only serves to reinforce our faith superficially. Because instead of resting in the sovereignty of God where your faith and your heart and your mind ought to be resting, that kind of thinking leads us to... Not look up, but to look here, to look within. And to rest not in God's strength, but in our own strength. And what we have seen in our study of First Peter is the absolute necessity that Christians be prepared mentally, emotionally, and spiritually to suffer well. Because if they're not, when the hard times hit, and if they haven't, rest assured, relax, they will, you will be all the worse off now because if you are not prepared when the hard times hit, you will have confusion and doubt and anxiety thrown onto the pile of affliction that you are now already dealing with. And when that happens, one of two things tends to happen. Either people double down in their belief that all God wants for you is your best life now and that all God wants for you is clear skies and smooth sailing. Or people in the final analysis conclude that this whole Christian thing really isn't for me. And so they abandon their faith. And these are uh, preachers who purport this kind of thinking, and people who receive this kind of teaching, they don't wrestle with texts like psalm 88 i would love it if, if you are taking notes write down psalm 88 and read that this week and email me or text me or get back to me later i would just love to know what what you think of psalm 88 what do you do with that what do you do with luke 13 1 to 5 the the tower of siloam that fell on a bunch of people what do you do with John nine, one to twelve, the man born blind, not because of his sin, not because of the sin of his parents, but born blind so that the glory of God might be shown. What do you do with the whole book of Job? If you have found yourself wrestling, as as I have, and as many Christians have, if you found yourself wrestling with trying to understand how God wants suffering to be a part of the Christian life, and I propose a third option, and that is to rest in the sovereignty of God. Pastor Carl said a couple months ago, and I, I love this line, he quoted somebody, and he said, Let the sovereignty of God be the pillow upon which you lay your head at night. I love that. In other words, trust that when, not not if, but when God allows suffering to happen that He does so for a reason. And that he will work good. He will work a triumph through it. Suffering was certainly no stranger to the early church. The Christians were uh, as the Christian faith uh, graduated from something that was initially looked at with suspicion and as it progressed to being perceived as a uh, threat to the empire. Christians were found to uh, receive increasing hostility from the emperor himself, from their government uh, officials, from magistrates, from the Roman soldiers. Many Christian slaves were treated hard by their masters. Many Christian uh, Christians suffered at the hands of their spouses. Some Christians even found uh, persecution and hard times even from the hands of other christians in the church and beginning in chapter 2 verse 11 peter has dealt with each of those relationships and he's been instructing you know his desire is to equip christians how to suffer well and he has dealt with each one of those relationships part and parcel and instructed you as a Christian, as a Christian citizen, as a Christian husband, as a Christian servant, as a Christian amongst other Christians, this is how you ought to conduct yourself, especially when you're suffering. This is how you suffer well for the name of Christ. And what he has been stressing, what he wants you to see, is that the sovereignty of God is the rust it is the it is the crux of the argument as Peter is drawing upon the suffering of Christ in, in, in a sense it says Peter is saying I get it that your days are hard I get it that times are tough and there are times where it looks like the suffering will never end can any of you relate but Peter says remember that Jesus That your Lord Jesus had a day like that. He had a rough day. And see what God Almighty did through his suffering. And there are four things that God did. Four aspects. uh, Four triumphs that God accomplished through Jesus' suffering. And the first one is the triumphant death of Jesus. God made Jesus' death a triumph. The very thing that Jesus' opponents had marked as their victory turned out to be Jesus' greatest accomplishment. The, The Jews and even the demons, as we looked at last time, thought that they had gained the upper hand in disgracing and silencing Jesus by... Getting him on the cross and having him executed. But we saw how the cross was precisely where and when Jesus bore the sins of his people. And he bore the wrath of a holy God. That would have fallen on me. And it would have fallen on you had Christ not been provided to be a sufficient shelter for all who come to him. The second aspect of Jesus' triumph was the triumphant declaration that he made in that short time that his body lay cold in the tomb. Being dead in the body but alive spiritually, Jesus went somewhere. We, and we looked at how Jesus went to hell, not as a victim, not to suffer one moment longer, but to preach. Preach. Jesus went to hell to preach. He didn't go to preach evangelistically to souls in purgatory, as some have speculated to where he would offer them a second chance to repent and believe and be forgiven. But we, we believe that the Holy Spirit doesn't miss anybody and that all Every single soul who has been foreknown and elected by God and appointed to salvation, the Holy Spirit has a one. I say I'm not good with sports. Was it a one thousand batting average? Is that is that it? Yeah, Jack's giving me the nod. The Holy Spirit has a perfect track record in acquiring and appropriating and regenerating all those who are foreknown and elected by God, and so they will all be saved before hell. Jesus went not to evangelize but to declare sure and certain triumph to these certain spirits who had been in incarcerated in the abyss since the days of Noah. These were spirits who had transgressed in such a way that they had warranted God's immediate and fierce judgment. And that's why Peter says that these spirits who we looked at, they're demons. And demons who are, they're, they're disobedient all the time, right? But Peter points out these were spirits who were once disobedient. So he's highlighting there was a uniqueness. There was a new low to which they had sunk in their in their disobedience. And time doesn't permit me to dig all of that back up some of you may have found that uh, an interesting study and if you have uh, if if you want to listen to it again when the sermon is posted online I I do invite you go and and listen to it but suffice to say these were demons who had sunk to despicable and wicked depths in their attempts to circumvent and undermine the arrival of Jesus Christ as the Savior for men and women in that very moment when they had thought they had perchance gained the high ground in having the promised Messiah rejected and executed. Jesus Christ shows up and he he doesn't politely tell them, Oh, I'm sorry. He proclaims to them it's the same word for preaching. He preached, he proclaimed, he declared, You lost, I won. For three days. So no one has a right to complain about how long anybody's sermon is, because that was a three-day sermon that nobody wanted to hear. For all their efforts to afflict him, to tempt him, to undermine him, to thwart God's agenda, Christ explained to them, he proclaimed to them, God accomplished every single detail of His sovereign plan, and the, I mean, the, the part where, where I think Jesus was really rubbing their nose in it was when He, I'm sure, He was explaining to them how He used their plotting and He used their scheming and their demonic devices and activities as, the, as, as one of the cogs to actually bring about God's plans. Imagine being told that. Your very attempts to rebel was used to further God's plans. I kind of, I I would kind of be interested to have sat in on that sermon, but uh, I hear the AC doesn't work there. So today, we'll look at the third and fourth aspects of Jesus Christ's triumphs in his sufferings, and we will be reminded that as God worked through. Christ's suffering, he certainly works triumph in the suffering of those who are in Christ. In verse 21, we'll see the third aspect of Christ's triumph through his suffering, and that is the triumphant deliverance that he gives to his people. And then in verse 22, we will see the fourth aspect, and that is his triumphant dominion that he has been awarded. So let's read the text. 1 Peter chapter 3, 21 to 22, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, After angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, you see, point three, the triumphant deliverance, the deliverance that Christ triumphantly gives to his people. Verse 21, Peter says, he begins. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And then he breaks off into a parenthetical statement before we get into that. That's this look at what we have so far. At first glance, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. At first glance, this kind of sounds like Jesus suffered and died so that you could, we could open up that, that, that tank, that water tank in the back and someone could get dunked in it or someone could, could go get submerged in the pool at Camp Gilead and by immersing and, and by, by being plunged into that water, that that is what saves men. Is that what Peter's saying? No. And he, that's not what Peter is saying, and he gives us several clarifications for us to consider. First, notice how he began verse 21. What word does he use? He says, corresponding to that. Cor- corresponding to what? Well corresponding to what has come before verse twenty one. And I I got a master's degree to, to stand here and tell you that what came before verse twenty-one is found in verse twenty. Amazing. That's a California education for you. Uh, so what came before twenty-one is is in verse twenty, and that's the flood account. Genesis six through nine. And we see Peter Peter did this by referring to the spirits who, he says, they were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. That's Peter cluing us in as to what he's talking about. During the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And he uses a special word to relate the baptism that now saves you and me to Noah's flood, that that word correlate correlating it, it, it's a it's a technical word it's it it's the word antitype ha, has anyone heard that before? Didn't think so. Now I'm sure everyone has used the corresponding word to antitype, which is type. It's a word we use every day, but antitype refers to something that that has been prefigured or foreshadowed. By one or more predecessors, by, by by preceding events or people or things, it uh, usually in the past, and it, it corresponds. It 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 relates the two together. The anti-type, uh, the type relates or complements or corresponds to that which came before it. I know this is technical. I'm I'm trying to make it. Uh, I'm trying to bring it down, because this is, this was tough even for me the first time I read it. The the thing that comes first is called the type, okay? And it, it prefigures the what? What comes last? Antitype. The type prefigures, foreshadows, points to the antitype. The type points forward, and again, it, it prefigures something which is... Greater or beyond itself, it it points to something that is more significant to itself. Let let, let me give you an example. A man wants to propose to his girlfriend and make her his fiancée. So he goes out, uh, and he knows that there's this business trip he's going to go on, and he arranges for her to pick him up, meet him at the terminal. So he buys buys a, a whole bunch of beautiful beautiful pristine red roses and he makes a special announcement you know mid-flight and he arranges for each person on the flight hopefully it was a small plane otherwise that this is this would be very expensive but he organizes for everyone on that plane who would get off before him to as as they enter the terminal they give her one of the red roses right and each rose is pointing towards something beyond the rose. It, it, each rose is, is prefiguring something more important, more significant, more valuable than a flower, which is what? What? Yeah, the ring. Exactly the each rose is ultimately prefiguring the diamond ring that the guy has in his pocket now each rose is good each rose is beautiful each rose has meaning right ladies you want you want you'd like your husband to give you a rose from time to time but at the end of the day which one's more important which one is weight here the rose or the ring the ring okay so the, the, the rose is the type. It is pointing towards something that comes after it, which is more important, more significant, the ring, the anti-type. And he, the book of Hebrews develops this idea, and it demonstrates how God had prefigured or foreshadowed the person and the work of Jesus Christ multiple times in the Old Testament by, by using the law. the the temple, the sacrifices, the Sabbath rest, the priesthood, and even certain people at time to time would serve as a type which in a way pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And a a, a clear example is uh, Abraham. I mean, think about this. Father Abraham takes his son of promise, Isaac on a three-day Journey up the mountain and he Has Isaac carrying The wood for the Sacrifice and this is a Sacrifice where a father is Call is offering up his Son as a sin offering Do you you see the parallels So In many ways events And figures and, and even ordinances In the Old Testament prefigure Jesus And Peter is drawing on that when he says that the deliverance of Noah and his family somehow, in some way, in some sense, prefigures the deliverance that Christians now have. And it would behoove us to be familiarized with uh, the flood account, lest we be awash. If some of you haven't heard of Noah or haven't read the the, the flood account since you saw that flannel graph, uh, you know, in in, uh, in Sunday school all those years ago. And I'm hoping none of you have walked in uh, having seen that um, Russell Crowe movie. If, if you saw that, just no. Just no. I read the summary to that. No. Mm-mm. So uh, I would love to read Genesis 6 through 9 to you, but we would probably be here a while. So let me summarize for you. The the flood account begins in a very bleakly, Genesis 6-5, Genesis 6-5 encapsulates the diagnosis of man. It says, the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. And then in verse 11, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And just as a side note, that uh, towards those who would suggest that the flood was localized, Moses is saying God looked down and saw the whole earth was filled with violence. The whole earth was, was uh, warranted judgment, not just one nation or one locality. Okay, rabbit hole closed. So God responds to the depravity of man by judging the world in a flood. And only uh, of all the families of the earth, of all the people, only Noah is found to be a good and faithful man. And so God shows him mercy and instructs him to build the ark to save his family. And he instructs Noah, gather a pair of each kind of animal and a couple more of the clean animals for sacrificing. But save save the animal kingdom to perpetuate life on the earth. And so Noah builds the ark. And there's two views. It either it took him about 100 years or 120 years at the end of the day, we can safely say it took a long time. It took a long time. He, they didn't have Dewalt, but uh, circular saws and power drills uh, to assemble this. So, year after year, there's Noah building the ark. Now, do you remember? Do you remember when you know when a, a herald camping predicted the end of the world? Was that 2011, 2012? I mean, it, and I, I'm, I know that this has happened before, but in my lifetime, that's the first real big one I remember was Harold Camping. And then there was another one uh, last year in 2017. I didn't get quite the hubbub, but it, it still was noticed. But do you remember, you don't have to grasp at straws to really get a sense for the um derision that people have for doomsday sayers right we 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 get that now imagine what it would be like to be noah hey noah i heard you quit your job the other day which he'd have to because he has a boat to build for 100 years i heard you built you quit your job the other day and i uh, see you're building something what are you building a boat for what it seems kind of big oh the whole world's going to be flooded in judgment oh okay that's, that's not going to help Noah make make a lot of friends I mean ha, have you ever in your in your attempts to evangelize someone have you ever told them that judgment is coming upon the world and that right now God is angry with their sins God is angry for, at them right now for their sins that he, God finds what they do and what they think and what they are to be offensive and that unless they repent right now and believe in Jesus Christ they will be judged for their sins is, is that the way to make friends no no preaching the gospel is not an effective strategy for friend making and you can imagine the reputation that Noah uh, gar- garnered for himself as a preacher of righteousness which is what Peter says in 2 Peter 2 5 that's the reputation he has he's a doomsday sayer for 120 Years Now, beloved, you have to, we can safely assume this caused Noah no small amount of suffering, which I think is wholly appropriate for Peter to bring up as he's addressing Christians' suffering and Christians being faithful in their suffering. Noah is a great example. 120 years of being derided and mocked, scoffed at. Looked at like you're a lunatic. How successful and effective was Noah at his evangelism, you ask? How many people entered the ark on that last fateful day? Eight. How many people were in Noah's family? Okay, so you do the math. Eight people entered the ark. Noah and his his wife and his three sons and their wives... Eight people. You do the math. How many people believed, repented and believed, and were saved as a result of Noah's uh, preaching outside of his family? Not many. That's that's a low. I, I, I have enough sense. No, that is a low batting average. That is a low evangelistic batting average. So there's Noah. He's building the ark, which was, you know, it's, it wasn't this beautiful, immaculately grafted. You know, boat with, with uh, 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 ergonomically designed vision slits and, and everything. It, this was a big, I don't know what gopher wood looks like, that's what it was made out of. It was a big box. It was a big barge that was completely covered in pitch inside and out. It was meant not to be aesthetically uh, attractive, it was meant to be functional. It, it, me- it was meant to float, not to navigate. So it's this big box. This big barge. And Noah uh, finds and he gathers the animals. He loads them onto the ark. There's a seven-day grace period. Uh, last last chance. I, I've got the boat made. I've actually managed to get all the animals, and they're right here, which is, that's something that doesn't happen every day. You'd think some people might have some considerations. No one gets on the boat. And God closes the door to the ark, and he seals the doom of everyone who remains on the earth and the rains come and slowly start to collect and build and eventually the water begins to rise and it rains for 40 days but the text says that the waters prevailed for 150 days who who thought noah was on the ark for maybe a month or two that's that's the that's that was my understanding when i read it in sunday school after almost half a year, six months, the waters eventually begin to decrease. And it takes another six months before the waters recede enough for the ark to rest and for Noah to get off the ark. So he's on the boat for a year, for just about a week over a year. That's, that's a lot of time on the boat. That's, I mean, how many games of tic-tac-toe can you play? And as they leave, they find themselves themselves in an entirely new world. And God makes a covenant with Noah where he reminds them he is still with them favorably and that he would perpetuate, he would sustain the world in its seasons and he wouldn't judge the world again with water. And he he gives Noah and, and all future generations a sign to remember his covenant. Who knows what that is? rainbow. So, God had the rainbow first before a certain progressive group of people. We God had it first. So, to remind them of his covenant, he put the rainbow in the sky. That, that should also, uh, for, for anyone who's ever uh, feared about global warming, looking at the rainbow should remind you God is going to sustain the seasons until what we see in Revelation. And, No, no, Noah, a failure to recycle is not going to bring about what we read in Revelation. So rabbit hole closed again. So we've shed some light on the nature of this baptism that saves us. We, We see that the ark and the flood and the deliverance of Noah and his family corresponds. It relates to the salvation by prefiguring our salvation. And you may ask, well, how so? but well, we shed more light on this by considering the range of meaning of the word baptism the word baptism and that that the word literally means to submerge or to immerse and because of the way it's used predominantly in the New Testament it it normally means to be immersed or submerged or dunked in water water but if we if we assume If we interpret it in this text as meaning baptized in water, we are making an assumption upon the meaning of the word, and we have to realize if the context doesn't allow it, we should look for clues that provide a better interpretation. And there's two clues that help us see Peter doesn't have in mind water baptism. He's saying it's not water that corresponds to that which saves us. And the first is that Peter tells us as much as he begins that parenthetical statement in, verse, in the middle of verse 21, which says not the removal of dirt from the flesh, and perhaps even by Peter's day. There had been this logical assumption that when you read the word baptism, you would just assume water baptism. And so Peter clarifies that's not what he's talking about. He's not being talked about immersed in water. And someone may say, well, Aaron, Peter says this corresponds to the flood and water has something to do with the flood. So what about that? And I'd say, yes, there is water. There was water in the flood. But let me ask you, in the flood, those who got wet, were they saved or unsaved? So... Clearly, being in the water isn't enough to be saved. Water isn't the saving agent. Water is not that, the thing that does the saving or provides the salvation or applies, or applies the salvation. The water was the agent of judgment. The water was what people needed to be saved from. What was the saving agent? What, in, in, in the flood, what was the saving agent? What did the saving? The boat. The box. That was an occasion where you didn't want to think outside the box. You wanted to be in the box. <laughs> Thank you for that. It the, the ark was the saving agent. being immer- and g- Going back to this word baptized, being immersed in the box, being put into the ark was what saved Noah and his family So with that understanding of being immersed into something that's now see how this correlates to the baptism that saves us Not as being immersed into water, but being immersed into and you said earlier I think Christ being put into Jesus Christ being immersed into Christ is what Saves you and it's what saved Saves me being in Christ and having our sins placed onto him and having his righteousness placed onto us, that is what saves any man, any woman, any soul. Paul speaks from Romans 6, 3 and 4 when he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That, and then there's a there's another uh, uh, qualifier that Peter gives. It's it's a it's an additional thought that this baptism, that this immersion into Christ, is made by an appeal to God for a good conscience. See how he continues that parenthetical thought. Why does any man? come to Christ. Because by faith he appeals for a clean conscience and he sees that the only way that scripture has informed him, the only way to have his sins forgiven is to come to Christ. Because one thing, the gospel is abundantly clear. The gospels do not make any effort to hide whatsoever the fact that Jesus Christ has the right and the authority and the prerogative to forgive sins and that is something that he alone has. No other man has the right or the authority or the prerogative or the office where he can declare someone's sins forgiven. That is that is unique to Christ alone. And just as that ark in the flood the ark was the unique and exclusive way to be saved just as noah built that ark and he got into it to be saved you and i came to christ and we made an appeal for mercy we made an appeal for mercy to have our sins forgiven we don't no one approaches christ and and asks how can i work my sins off how can i make good on my sins. What can I do? What laws can I keep? What amount of money can I give? What, what code of conduct and what code of ethic can I do to inherit eternal life? That's not how it works. We appeal for mercy. We appeal for forgiveness. And the beautiful thing is, beloved, God does that very thing in Jesus Christ. Noah didn't ask the ark how he could ward off the flood by his efforts or by anything he could do. He didn't ask if he could do the dog paddle alongside the ark. He needed to get in the ark and he needed to let the ark do the saving. In the same way, coming to Christ and asking him to forgive sins saves you because Christ Jesus forgives the sins of all those who come to him. I hope you get that. I hope you... That's coming through clearly. Christ forgives the sins of all who come into faith. And that's what Peter means by making an appeal for a clean conscience. That, that word appeal, it, it, it's a technical word. It, it doesn't just mean to to cry out or to ask for something. It means to make a pledge. It means to make a covenant. It means uh, a, an oath, a binding agreement. And it's that kind of pledge that a repentant person makes when they come to Christ. They realize Jesus, the Lord Jesus, is not just a crutch to help me get through life. Jesus is not just a, a, a scheme to get onto the easy way. He's not the path to the easy life, he is life. He is life. And you can be assured of that by the resurrection. That's, that's the proof in the pudding for the gospel. You can be assured of the forgiveness of sins and of the inheritance of heaven because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We We looked at this last time, right? There ain't no way that no disciples of a disgraced rabbi, we're going to somehow sneak Jesus's dead body past the guards. Wasn't going to happen. Jesus died a real death, and he arose in a real resurrection. By dying, it surely looked like Jesus was defeated and disgraced, but God vindicated Jesus, and He demonstrated to all that He. That he, Christ, was victorious over death by resurrecting Jesus from the dead. And by virtue of that resurrection, you can be assured of everything that he's promised you. You can be assured of everything he has promised you. Like deliverance from a holy God who has wrath and who is angry at sin. By instructing Noah to build the ark, God saved Noah from God. By appointing Christ as a sacrifice for you and me, God saved you and me from God. That is a triumphant deliverance. You you weren't delivered from a disappointing life. You weren't delivered from failed expectations or mediocrity. You were delivered from God's anger triumphantly. That was the third aspect. The fourth is the triumphant dominion that Christ now enjoys. The triumphant dominion that God has rewarded to Jesus. See in verse 22 Peter has has just referred to Jesus Christ, and he says, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So where is Christ right now? He is at the right hand of God. That phrase, the right hand, in in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, this is a good place. This is a place of authority, of power, of honor, of majesty, of glory, of exaltation, of preeminence. It's a good place. It's a good place. Paul sheds light on this in uh, Philippians 2, 7-11. He, he begins uh, describing Jesus' humiliation. He 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 talks about Jesus' suffering in verses 7 to 10. And then he says that Jesus didn't consider his deity something that he had to grasp onto. Some of you have met Missy, my little terrier rat thing. And we have this little rope, and if she – and Ruka will do this too, but I can't use Ruka for this illustration – Missy, if I if I play with her with this rope and she latches on, she does not want to let go of the rope, and I may or may not have uh, uh, from time to time lifted her, on you know lifted her up in the air because she, she has grasped, she considers the rope something to be grasped. She doesn't want to let go. She doesn't want to relinquish the rope. Jesus, Paul, Paul says in Philippians two seven, Jesus did not consider his privileges, his recognition as being recognized as as deity. He didn't consider that something he had to grasp onto, and he willingly set it aside. And he came in, the, he came to earth as a man, the creator. Hum- Humbles himself, and he comes down in the form and likeness of his creation. But not just any man. In the, He comes like a servant. A servant who will die. And not just any death, but the death on a cross. Do you, do you see that downward progression of humiliation? And he dies, and Paul says in verse 9, For this reason also... For his suffering, for his being humiliated, for all that he endured, for that, God highly, not just averagely, not just kinda, God highly exalted him, and he bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth, and and under the earth. And last time we looked at some of the some spirits who are under the earth right now, wherever the abyss is, some of those spirits, if 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 spirits have knees, they, they were forced to bow them at that point. That at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord the Supreme One, the Sovereign One. Em, you know, in, in the Roman Empire, who was Lord? Caesar. And except for some uh, freak occurrences in history, th- there was not multiple Lords. There were not multiple Caesars. There's one guy who sits on top of a pyramid. If you have two guys, it ceases to be a, a, a power pyramid. You have one Lord. And one day, there is coming a day where everyone will be forced to admit Jesus Christ is Lord. Hebrews 1, 3-4 says he is the radiance of, of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications of sin, he sat down at the right hand. Of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels, as he has inherited a much more excellent name than they. And saying that Jesus has become so much more better, so much more excellent than the angels. Do you know how people responded to the angels when they encountered them in the Bible? You know, it, you know. Uh, some of you may have uh, seen those... Um, Precious moments, angels on your Christmas cards or, uh, you know, people were terrified when they encountered angels. People's People fell down in fear and trembling because of the angels. And Christ has become not just better, not just a step, a notch above. He has become much better than the angels. He has received a more... Excellent, a more excelling, a much grander name than they. No, no angel was ever called Lord. Only Christ. And it is this exalted, glorified, honored, preeminent, majestic, powerful, authoritative, commanding, worthy of worship Christ that I hope we all see as we've been reading through Revelation in our public scripture reading i hope that's the jesus that's coming across because that's the jesus in the scripture he in revelation 4 he alone is found worthy to open the scroll that's the title deed to the earth he alone is the one worthy to decree and issue judgment on the earth because he owns it we see that christ has a worldwide cosmic dominion and One day he is coming back to the earth to claim what is his and he will take by divine force, he will take by divine decree what is rightfully his and the only reason he hasn't come back now rightfully kicking down the doors and slaying those who disobey him is because God is merciful and there are still men and women who are being saved as the gospel is going out and being proclaimed. There are still people being given faith to believe the gospel and day by day they are being put into the ark of Christ and they're being saved but one day there is coming a day where God will just as he closed the door on the ark in the days of the flood the day the, the door to the ark of Christ will be closed and this day of salvation will recede into the sunset. That day of salvation will expire and I plead with you, make certainty of your salvation and I plead with you to plead with others to make certainty of their salvation and to know Christ and to hear the gospel and to repent and to believe to be saved plead with others I I plead with you now for your sake and for the sake of others that you would believe right now, right now Christ is Lord now the world looks at that and they mock they mock it because they don't see it they don't see it but Paul has already told us there's coming a day where every knee is going to bow every tongue is going to confess My prayer is that not one soul here will be forced to confess the lordship of Christ in the way that these spirits who were incarcerated, as they were forced to confess the lordship of Christ. My prayer is no one here will have that fate. Until that day comes... Peter wants us to remember that even though hell and its demonic forces rail against the church. Remember what what Paul says in Ephesians 6.12. We don't wrestle with blood. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. What do we wrestle against? Principalities and powers and spirits and rulers. That's That's the same language. That's the same terminology. That's the same sphere that Peter says here. After angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. What we wrestle with, what afflicts us, has already been subjected to, placed under the authority of our Lord. That should give you some sense of confidence. Some sense of assurance. No matter what assails you, whether it's corrupt men, corrupt governments, perhaps even demonic forces, influences, the strongest enemy you will ever, ever, ever face has already been made subject to Christ. Christ has been exalted into heaven, which is the highest and the most glorious spheres of all planes of existence. all the forces in the spiritual places and angels and authorities and powers and all the infl- all the influences that can and will assail you have been subjected to him they are all under his dominion and that's a triumph for Christ and it's a triumph for those who are in Christ you don't see the suffering Jesus in revelation you see a you see a glorified, exalted Christ who slays his enemies with the sword that comes out of his mouth. That's a good Christ to belong to. That's a good Christ to be put placed into. They've All these things have been subjected to his rule and you and I can find comfort, Christian, as little Christ, that your Lord is strong enough and he is wise enough and he is Sovereign enough? I mean, really, think about what that word means. Sovereign. That that everything is underneath him. That all things answer to him. He is the sovereign one. Christ is sovereign enough to allow spiritual foes, your spiritual foes, to afflict you just enough. And in just the right amount. And in just the right way as to accomplish God's purposes In your suffering. God may use your suffering to draw someone to him. Have you thought about that? God may use your suffering to build your character. God may use your suffering to humble you. He did that for Paul. Like Job, God may use your suffering to demonstrate your faithfulness. And you know what? Like Job... God may not reveal to you why he is causing you to suffer. Like Job, you may not become privy to why God has allowed loss and affliction, disability, depression, chronic illness, death in the family. All of the circumstances that that befall us, that, that inevitably lead people to ask that, Time old question, why do bad things happen to good people Have you ever heard someone ask that have Have you ever asked that? Why is this happening to me? Church We serve and worship and are owned by an exalted Christ who has been elevated and exalted and glorified beyond any possible status. This world can ever know. And that is a good Christ to belong to. Amen. Let's, let's close. Lord Jesus, we, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for being the Savior and Redeemer that the Scriptures reveal you to be. You are our champion. You are our life. You are our refuge. You are our ark. Oh, Lord, the, the, the many names that the scriptures give you. I pray, Lord Jesus, help us to grasp just a little more how wonderful you are for us. Help us to grasp just a little more the mercy and the grace that you have given to your people. Help us to rest in you. May, may we never, ever rest in, our own, in ourselves or in our works. Keep us looking to you. Amen.